Many argue that what was written by the Old and New Testament writers is not appropriate for an intelligent, modern conversation. Even the language, some say, is old-fashioned and doesn't have efficacy. Are the Bible's teachings on sex out of date? Should we be using the word purity? Dana Gresh puts the word on trial and reveals three things that the church needs to embrace as it answers the question. This message was delivered at her alma mater, Cedarville University. Good morning. What I want to talk to you about today is, is, is actually just a single word. Recently, I was responding and, and moderating comments on one of my blog posts, and it was a blog post in December on the topic of the Virgin Mary. Well, I got all these, I mean, I probably started World War whatever because the comments were so hate-fueled. They were like this. I was accused of women shaming over and over again for using the word virgin. I was like, what? It, it's the Virgin Mary we're talking about here. It's somewhat appropriate. And the comments were things like this. Um, this author is woman shaming. It's wrapped in a pretty package. Or such dialogue and scrutiny over a woman's virginity, a.k.a. purity, only feeds into patriarchal-based woman shaming. And that was just the, the, the crest of the frustration. And I say crest because I saw the wave coming. All year long, I saw this wave coming of about the last 18 months as things have shifted in our culture and the conversation has shifted that the biblical words of sexuality are under assault and under attack. And one of them that's under assault is the word purity. I have some of the most conservative Christian mothers whose teenage and college-age daughters adore me have read all my books, and these so-called conservative moms write to me, begging me, keep doing what you're doing, keep doing your, but could you please not use the word purity? It's so old. It's so old-fashioned. It's so ineffective. And the argument from within the church, to me, is that the word purity has no efficacy today in this culture. And I really want to kind of talk about that, and what I want to do is I want to put the word purity on trial. And as I do this, I want us to really put on trial the whole concept of using biblical language to talk about sexuality as all. So, at, at all. So purity is kind of a stand-in for all the words that we get all hyped up and upset about. And as we do this, um, I hope that today is just kind of a, a starting point and that you'll continue this trial and this conversation throughout the day. But my question for you, my, my challenge to you, is that you would base what you say, um, what you think you, you believe, on the Bible, not just on your opinion. I believe that the conversation will probably get a little heated at certain points today, and I just beg you, if you could just, before you type in those words, could you think about, okay, is this what I think, or is this what God's Word says? So here's my opening argument on a defense for purity, three things that the church needs to embrace. Number one, the reason that we need to use the word purity is because the word purity is in the Bible. While the context of purity is found in endless passages, I'm going to share just two with you today. The first one is Psalm 119.9, and I chose this one because I hear constantly that, um, well, there's no teaching on purity for men because purity is a feminine concept. But God's word says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Apparently it's not a feminine word because God's word addresses it to you, gentlemen. 
And for women, let's look at Titus. In Titus 2, 3 and 4, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now that verse, among others, debunks the myth that purity is something we pursue until our wedding night. Because it's addressed here to married women. They're sexually active, but called to purity. Called to live in that state of that lifestyle of purity. So the question isn't whether God's word says we should use it. He uses it for men. He uses it for marrieds. He uses it for all of us. It's an invitation into a lifestyle. The question is, does it work today with our Tinder savvy culture Maybe it's just not as, as powerful, doesn't have the impact that maybe it did for our Victorian-clad grandmas and our car door-opening grandpas. Well, I don't think that's true. I don't, I, I don't think it works less today just because we've changed. I don't think God's Word works less today because we've changed. And there's two reasons why I think that the word purity is, is powerful and useful for you today. One is because I can see from studying the research for well over a decade on sexuality and the practices of American culture that the word purity works practically. It works practically. A University of Illinois study says that the most sexually satisfied Americans are those in mutually monogamous lifetime partnerships. I call that marriage. And, and the most interesting news in this very liberal sexual study is that the highest levels, the highest reports of sexual satisfaction and pleasure were among, among religiously active women. I call that the revenge of the church lady. <laughs> A lifestyle of self-control and practice of purity does not result in less sexual pleasure, but in more. And this is true of men also. Um, another study out of, uh, let's see, the, the, the University of Indiana, Indiana U University, found that men over the course of their lifetime, if they had more sexual partners, the more sexual partners they had, the less sexual satisfaction they reported over the course of their life. Conversely, the fewer sexual partners they had, the higher rate of sexual satisfaction they reported in their lives. Purity works. Put it into practice in your life. It is a practical tool. But the word purity is also theological, theologically effective. And the reason that I say that is because John Wesley often used um, this particular Bible first verse to defend the fact that we need to use the words that God uses to teach the things that God teaches. And the Bible verse is this, 1 Peter 4, 11a. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. I, I use the word purity when I teach not just the statistics, not just the, the, the testimony of my own life and the testimony of others. I use the word purity because God uses the word purity. And it is effective in our lives. Now, the second thing that I want to say about purity is this. The meaning of the word purity does not define a condition, but rather a direction. Now, the Greek New Testament used the word hannas 
for, for purity in verses like the ones that I read to you a few moments ago. And the word means pure, clean, without fault, chaste, exciting, reverence, sacred. Now, I don't know, but when I read those words, I think that I am not there yet. Are, are you there? Are, are, you, are you in a constant state of being chaste? Are you in a constant state of being without fault in your mind, if not your body? Are, are you in a constant state of living out the, your sexual desires in a sacred manner? I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Maybe you are. It seems humanly impossible. And here's where um, many of us like myself, once was an unmarried, non-virgin, we lash out at biblical teaching because it makes us feel so incredibly impure. I remember being a student here at Cedarville, sitting in those very seats and just so broken over my past, so broken over decisions that I'd made that I thought that I would never make to give away the gift that I meant to give to my husband on my wedding night to someone else. And I I remember sitting there so covered in my shame, so quieted in my testimony, so broken in my spirit, and the lie that I believed was that I had given away and lost something that God gave to me when I was first born, uh, at the point of my birth that I was innocent and pure, and, and, and I want to test that against scripture because I find that that lie that we've ruined something God gave us is, is so prevalent when we've sinned sexually. And the, and the verse I want to use to test that in our hearts is Psalm 51.5. It says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. You and I were not born pure. We were born innocent, but we were not born pure. We were born sinful. We were born in a sinful state. And and you and I can't do anything to necessarily lose our purity. We just might, might not have never had it. I know lots of virgins who are far from pure. And I know former sex addicts who walk in beautiful integrity and purity. Because I believe that purity is not a state or a condition of existence, but a process, a movement forward. Let me read a Bible verse to you that that describes beautifully what this process, this looks like, this direction, this, this feat of sanctification that is purity. It's out of the book of Philippians 2, 12 and 16. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that act of sanctification. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. You hear that word? Become. It's an act, a movement, a process, a direction. So that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Now, This might be an important opportunity, important place for me to posit the thought that 
When we try to live like stars in a dark universe, sex matters. Sex matters. The way that you live out your sexual life is one of the most significant things you will do to shine the love of God's light in this dark world. And the reason that I say that is because of the language of sex in the Bible. We live in a culture that language of sex is really limiting it to an act of the physical. And yet God's word in the language of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that it's really much more. It's, a, it's an act that transcends the physical, barely having anything to do with it. Years ago, as I was doing my research first to write and the bride wore white, I happened upon a word in Genesis 4 in the Old Testament, the word yada. Now, I, I, I didn't know until Dr. Daniel Estes told me that it was pronounced that way. So I just thought it said yada, you know, yada, 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 blah, 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 boring, boring, boring. Well, it turns out that this word is not so boring after all. The act of sex, the act of marriage in the Old Testament, the word used is yada, and it means to know, to be known, to be deeply respected. Not one inkling of the physical act in that definition. It transcends the physical and moves us into an emotional, a deep knowing. You see, you see the physical, where the world stops with their definition, is just a conduit to what God was really creating for us, a deep knowing, a deep respect that is not just emotional, but very spiritual, as I will show you in just a moment. And there's another word in the Old Testament that's used for sex, because the backdrop of the Old Testament was a culture much like ours, where the act of sex was disrespected, it was just a physical act, and so there's lots of recordings of sexual sins throughout the Old Testament, and the word used in those verses is the word shakab. And the definition of that word is this, to exchange body fluids. Ugh. But that, that's the definition that our world operates on. It's a physical act. It's merely physical. Why is it never enough? Why is that porn hit never enough? Why is that sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend never enough? Because it's a counterfeit. It's a quest for something physical. It's not a deep knowing in the covenant of marriage as God designed it to be. It will always lead to addiction and wanting more because it never quite satisfies because it's not the real thing. Satan's number one agenda in your sexual life is to convince you to reduce it to something that is only physical. And the reason that his agenda is that is this. If he can keep you in a state of believing that you are not pure and that you never will be, and so what does it matter? you will lose one of the greatest opportunities to be a picture of the gospel there is. Because that word yada is used in the Old Testament like 900 times. Hello, that's a lot of yada. But it's only used a handful of times to talk about the intimate knowing that a husband and wife can have together. It's used more frequently in verses like 
this one from Psalm 46.10. Be still and know, yada, that I am God. You see, the, the, the greatest picture of love, of God's love, is the marriage relationship. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says it so succinctly. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But I am really talking about Christ and the church. It's almost like the Apostle Paul changes subjects there, but he doesn't. He's just saying, listen, marriage had a purpose. The purpose was so you could see this beautiful love. And that love is most beautiful when it's that of a lover hanging on a cross in the place of his rightfully accused bride. The way you write your love story matters. It's a picture, it's a painting of the greatest love there is, and this dark world can't see it unless you paint it well. Every date is a brushstroke. Every kiss is a brushstroke. Every act of saying no to the counterfeit is a brushstroke. And some of you will have to say no over and over again. And some of you will not be able to do it alone. Some of you will need brothers and sisters walking beside you as you say no because, because it's like an addiction to you. And you have to count the days. One, two, three, four. And maybe you'll get to 30 this time. And maybe you'll get to 60 this time. And maybe you'll get to 90. Or maybe you'll get to 364. One, two, three. But don't stop counting. Don't stop starting over. Don't stop moving. Because when you stop counting, you've stopped moving in the direction. You've stopped giving legs to your sanctification. Get back up, count again, start over. Don't do it alone. Purity is not a state or a condition. It is a process. The third thing that I want you to know about purity is this. Virginity and abstinence are not synonyms for purity. They're not. A better synonym for purity might be holiness. They're not quite the same. Holiness, according to K. Arthur, is total purity without any taint of evil. As a leader in the modesty and purity movement, I, I, I want to apologize today. Because every great movement has its weaknesses. And one of our movement weaknesses has been this. Teaching imprecisely so that some, when their hearts are still very young and innocent, begin to believe the lie that their virginity is equal to their purity. And when I mean, what I mean when I say we've taught imprecisely is that we have failed to include in our teaching the celebratory instruction that's all through scripture for the act of sex. One of the most popular books reached for in our culture, still to this day, after centuries, is Kama Sutra. And I, re I really believe that the reason that Christians reach for teaching on sexuality that's outside the church, that's sometimes extra-biblical, but also sometimes anti-biblical, is because we have skipped this part, this celebration of the gift of marriage. And so after centuries, people are still reaching for this book written by Vatsyayama, and it claims to be the first book 
written on sexual pleasure. Now, there's a, a, a recently um, a one writer who wrote a book called Sex for Dummies, and it really, you have to be dumb to read it, um, wrote this. Christian and Jewish texts and teachings contain no mention of sex. In fact, the, these two religions make little or no connection between sex and worship and all, at all. So I'm going to blow this dude out of the water. Are you okay with that? In truth, Christianity alone boasts a book dedicated to the gift and the celebration of sexual pleasure. You know its name, Song of Songs. Now, here's the thing. In this unashamed celebration of sexual pleasure, this book was written 1,320 years before Kama Sutra. How is that for a thrashing? Yeah. <laughs> Christianity wholeheartedly endorses, embraces physical pleasure within the context of a covenant marriage bed between one man and one woman. Let me read to you some things from Song of Solomon. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me to his chambers. That's the PG stuff I can read from the book. <laughs> the very first chapter of the book says this. If you do not know, yada. Most beautiful of women follow the tracks. And it's an invitation to learn not only the covenant, spiritual, emotional purposes of sexuality, but the physical pleasure. Sex, it was created in part for your pleasure. But be careful in the quest, or you will rob yourself and limit yourself to a gift that is merely physical that never really reaches the full pleasure that God intends for you. Pleasure and purity are not opposites. So why are we so uncomfortable with the biblical language of sex? Why are we so uncomfortable with words like purity? I think I know. As I thought this through, I think, I think, I think it's the stories your story, Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner's story, complicated stories that tug at our hearts of compassion and cause us to be conflicted about what we believe. I mean, we are watching people walk through in vulnerability, in real time, what they believe about themselves, and it's causing us to question what we think we know and believe about God. I mean, who's, it's not just these stories in the news, it's these real stories right up next to us. It's the, um, it's sitting with a friend while she waits to find out if the pregnancy test is positive or negative. It's talking with your best friend because they can't overcome that addiction to pornography. It's, it's um, watching one of your dearest friends struggle through same-sex attraction and try to make sense of it. I mean, don't you just sometimes want to say to your friends, it's okay, God loves you just the way you are? I mean, does anyone ever feel that? 
And I think the stories make us struggle. Whose story is coming to your mind right now? The one that's coming to my mind is probably one of the most difficult stories I've ever faced. A mom called me about six months ago. She had just adopted a four-year-old, and um, I, I, I know that it's actually rather common for a baby to be born where it's difficult to determine what gender the baby is. Actually, about one out of 2,000 births, a sex gender specialist is brought in for examinations and blood tests, and it's usually very conclusive what gender that baby is. But in about one out of 150,000 cases, it still remains very elusive, and such was the case for this little child. At the age of four, they still could not make a determination. And that mom had called Christians and pastors looking for a biblical perspective on how they should proceed with this sweet baby. And they had decided to name the child Lori and raise it as a girl and wait for God to give them clear direction on what to do. And, and, and the saddest thing is that she really wasn't finding Christians comfortable with this hard story. But she was finding a lot of people in the GLBT, whatever all those letters are, community that were willing to talk. There's really so many letters we can't keep up with it now. Facebook has 52 genders. Well, they did until they removed it. Now it just says other, so you can fill in the blank. The Ontario Canadian, Canadian School District teaches that there are six genders. Beginning in elementary school, they teach that there are six. These are hard stories. Are they hard? Do they make you wonder? What if, instead of letting the stories determine what we believe about sex, we started to use Scripture to change the stories? What if Scripture could change your story? What if the guys in your hall started getting up and out of bed early every morning to get together to have accountability, to start their day in prayer because they need community to win the battle as taught in the scriptures? You know what I believe? I believe that uh, you don't necessarily just have a porn problem, you have a self-discipline problem. The Bible says that a man dies for lack of self-discipline. What if you started your day by denying yourself those few extra hours of sleep so that you could tell your flesh that your spirit was in control, as taught in the scriptures? What if um, the next time that you found out that a friend might be pregnant, you took a pregnancy test to her and you went with an intention of celebrating because no matter what bad timing it might be, life deserves celebration as taught in the scriptures. What if that friend that's struggling with same-sex attraction, that, that you would... Um, just admit, I don't have the answers, but I'm willing to pray for you. And that you really did pray for them. You didn't just say it, but you might even just enter into a time of fasting for them, not even telling them, because that's what the scriptures teach us, that when we hit something that's too hard and we don't know how to get our hearts and our minds delivered from, that we fast. That's what the Bible says. Why don't we start using the scriptures to change the stories instead of letting the stories believe, t teach us what we believe about the scriptures? You know, I only say this because the scriptures changed my story. Five years after I left Cedarville, I was a very broken girl. My sexual sin was 10 years behind me, but I was still in a, clo a cloak of shame. And, I, and out of desperation, I, I began, I, I said, okay, God, I don't know if I believe this anymore because it's not working for me. And so he, the Lord challenged me. He said, okay, why don't you spend an hour a day in there and see what happens? And I was like, an hour, really? 15 minutes doesn't do anything. 
but I committed to an hour a day in the Word. And I turned from a girl who was covered in shame and silence to one who was seeking, actively seeking confession because James 5.16 told me that confess your sins one to another and then you will be healed. And I was like, all right, let's see if it works. It took me three hours in a dark bedroom to confess to my husband who thought he'd married the driven snow. But it was like a new birth. It was like a spiritual rebirth. He will tell you I was never the same after that night. Because this, this word works. I, I, I turned from, from a, a, a silent girl who, who sat in the back row of the church to here I am. What am I doing up here today? I mean, this morning I woke up and I'm an introvert. I mean, not just a little introvert, all the way introvert. Like, I don't really like people all that much. And I woke up this morning with absolute dread because I thought to myself, okay, what's today? Oh, yeah, 3,000 people. That's a lot of people. And then I spent my one hour with God, and it rose up in me that I couldn't, stay, I couldn't wait to get here. I was, exci- I was nervous, okay, honestly. But excited because when I was in that one hour of prayer a day time, God brought me to 1 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. And it says, praise to the God and Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others with the same comfort we ourselves have received from Christ. Are you lonely, ashamed, afraid? Get in the word, because when that comfort of Christ starts pouring out on you, you it will just pour, it, 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 when it comes out from him, it pours out on others. You, you, you can't help but tell other people. I mean, look at me, listen to me. I, I'm, I, I've, written, I've written a few books, and I've sold 100 or 1.5 million copies of that book. I, I, those books. I've developed a TED Talk and stood on the TED platform defending tolerance for virginity. I've, um, I've been on CNN and Fox News. The introvert that's ashamed and afraid of her sin has been turned into a mouthpiece for God. Listen, if you think I'm bragging right now, you have not been in the depth of shame that I have known in my life. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you that the word changed me, and it can change you. If, if you have sin in your life, in your past, it's not like you have to get up here and tell everybody, but if you couldn't tell the person next to you who's struggling with the same thing so that they could be set free, you are not free. You're not okay. God's turned me from a broken vessel into someone whole that can stand before you today. And that, that brings me to this, this Bible verse and back to your story. I was praying last week in my one-hour closet, asking God what to share with you this week. And he gave me this verse, which is a little bit of an unusual verse. You might have to do a little bit of studying. I did. I'm not going to do that for you. Just give it to you as a gift. Matthew 12, 20 says, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I think that these difficult stories have turned many of you into bruised reeds. Those 
so broken. I mean, on the outside, you look so okay. You smile. You get up on the stage sometimes, and you act like it's okay. But, like, if the wrong thing came, the wind would just bend you over because your own story is one of such shame and brokenness. You are bruised reeds. And some of you have turned into smoldering wicks. And one of the reasons why you're smoldering wicks with your faith just about snuffed out, you don't even know what you believe about Christianity because you can't make sense of the Caitlyn Jenner story. You can't make sense of the story of a four-year-old that's born without very clear um, a gender identity. I mean, biological gender identity. This is a biological thing in this child. You, you can't make sense out of the, the, the pornography that all, everyone around you, the ubiquitous pornography that nobody can overcome. And so the compassion in your heart starts to shut out the word of God and you are a smoldering wick with your faith barely there. Here's the thing about bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. This verse tells us that Jesus doesn't treat you well the way that other Christians might. Sweet bruised reed, I've been praying for you for a week that he would hold you tenderly And he will, the way that he held me until you heal. Remember that I was once a bruised reed. And smoldering wicks maybe you need to stop being intellectual about your faith. Maybe you need to dare God. Maybe pick this up and dare him. All right, I want to feel it. If I hear one more Christian say that our Christianity is something that we shouldn't feel, listen, if you can't get it from here to here, it's not real. That's when we become whitewashed tombs. So I pray for you, sweet bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, that you'd be still just long enough for Jesus to heal the brokenness and to breathe life back into that barely there flame. This message was presented at Cedarville University, Dana's alma mater. If you enjoyed it and want to learn more from her on the topic of sex and purity, you'll enjoy a book entitled, What Are You Waiting For? The One Thing No One Ever Tells You About Sex by Dana Gresh. Get a copy at danagresh.com. This podcast was produced by Pure Freedom Ministries.